Hello and welcome to episode 13 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about the last three quartets in Beethoven's first collection of quartets, Opus 18. The first one we're going to address is the quartet number four in C minor. And when we hear Beethoven and the key of C minor, we have certain expectations, perhaps the most notable of which is dramatic intensity. And this quartet absolutely fulfills our expectations, at least the first movement does. The quartet remains a favorite of audiences and performers everywhere, combining dramatic intensity with pathos and some of the composer's most memorable themes. The first movement in common time and marked Allegro Manon Tanto begins with four bars that are as packed as any the young composer ever wrote. The first two bars present an initial motive that, although squeezed into the space of a minor third, proves to be a vehicle of great dramatic intensity. It begins piano with a jarring sforzando accent to start the second bar. The pulsating tonic pedal played by the cello has often been used before by Beethoven and a wide range of other composers, but perhaps never more effectively. It underscores a simple enough harmonic progression, tonic for the first bar, and a leading tone full diminished seventh for the second. But the dissonant diminished chord, combined with the sforzando accents, manages to project a sense of menace almost instantly. Beethoven moves the motive up a fourth for bars three and four, and there the effect may be even more ominous, particularly when the accented D-flat in the viola grates against the pedal C below it. Here are the first four bars. In bars 5 through 8 and beyond, since Beethoven immediately extends the idea, another powerful motive is introduced, an ascending leap heard within the harmonic context of a diminished chord over the continuing pulsating eighth notes in the cello. That dissonance resolves down by step quickly, but immediately afterward we hear another dramatic leap to a dissonance. This time it's a tritone, a diminished fifth. The next measure begins with still another dissonance, although not quite as sharp this time, before it all resolves into a dominant tonic cadence. The dramatic ascending motive is further developed in the next four bars, where the composer crescendos into a cadence on tonic, one fortified with a robust series of multiple stop chords. But Beethoven is not quite finished with this highly expressive motive. In the next few bars, he brings it back in the form of an ascending octave, which then descends expressively over a series of suspensions. Then, after a cadential extension of six bars, the entire first subject area comes to a dramatic close on the dominant. Here is the entire first subject area closing on a fortissimo dominant chord.
Increasingly in Beethoven's music, his transitions become more distinctive and meaningful, no longer simply a question of putting some space between major themes or taking time to bring about a gradual modulation to a new key. The modulatory transition mode of here is a very clever one, notable particularly for its rhythmic personality and the nifty interplay between first and second violins. It basically consists of a three-note pattern of eighth notes, the first marked staccato, the second two slurred. This is initially presented in pairs. The first moves up a half-step and then down a fourth, and the next down a half-step, then up a third. These two variants of the same basic idea are tossed back and forth between first and second violins, until, after a few measures, the first violin expands the ascending leap up significantly, thereby linking up not only with the second part of the first subject we just heard, but also looking ahead to the second subject, about which I'll say more in a minute. That's what happens motivically in the transition. Harmonically, it's all rather abrupt. The modulatory transition immediately asserts itself with an instant phrase modulation to A-flat major. It actually begins on the dominant seventh of that new key. Then, four bars later, Beethoven repeats the phrase in F minor, although he does modify it at the end to bring it to a close on a B-flat chord, because he's heading toward E-flat major for the second subject. Here's the modulatory transition, only eight measures long. Like the second four-bar phrase of the first subject, the second subject is characterized by a strong ascending leap, initially of a major sixth, but soon reaching higher. But the harmonic context is very different this time. It's no longer a leap to a strident dissonance, but has been domesticated into a supremely lyrical gesture. You may have noticed the first violin's little commentary on the second violin's broadly lyrical phrase. It is at first playfully glib, but becomes more expressively lyrical as it goes. After the first eight-bar presentation of the theme, the first violin joins with the second, presenting the melody an octave higher for four measures, after which the two diverge and the violin one melody works its way back down the scale in a series of suspensions. It then cuts off somewhat abruptly, yielding to a bubbly little Mozartian transition of four bars, which comes to a cadence on the dominant. This leads directly to the closing section, which is clearly articulated with some weak beat sforzandos, giving it a particularly distinctive character. Here is that little transition, followed by the closing section. Thank you. 
The closing section develops into a series of syncopated sequential passages that manage to generate a great deal of momentum, but no truly distinctive new melodic ideas. Beethoven never really abandons the key of E-flat, and, after a linking passage of four bars, the codetta appears. It is marked by another catchy little staccato motive, played quietly in octaves, but accented with some vigorous multiple stops after four bars. We return to the quieter staccato motive for the last few measures of the exposition, but the last two chords, played forte, wrench us back into C minor and hurl us back to the beginning of the movement. The development section is a masterful one. It begins in G minor with the first subject being presented up an octave in the first violin, while the other strings accompany it with the same pulsating eighth note pattern originally assigned to the cello alone. The texture is thick and unyielding, although the original reiterated pedal in the cello part is broken off after just two measures. Various motives and submotives from the first subject pop up almost continually in the various parts sometimes creating sharp dissonances in the process. While all this has been going on, we have naturally been moving from key to key. We shift first to C minor, then F minor, and in time for the second subject to make its appearance to F major. But after just eight bars, we return to F minor, where the repeated second theme takes on a more ominous tone, and then, after a series of syncopated suspensions, given extra urgency by the crescendo that propels them, the recapitulation returns in C minor. Here's the first part of the development section through to the introduction of the second subject. In the recapitulation, the first subject is transformed yet again, this time by means of a dynamic new countermelody in the second violin and viola. After a largely new transition, the second subject is presented in C major, and the closing section and codetta take their places accordingly. The coda is naturally somewhat new. Its most remarkable attribute, probably the surging ascending chromatic line played by viola and cello 
but it also manages to work in a clever revisiting of the three-note transition motive before racing to the final cadence. The second movement is not a slow movement, as you might expect, but a scherzo in C major, 3-8 time, and marked Andante Scherzozzo Quasi Allegretto. It's actually in sonata form, but we're only going to look at a few of its major themes. Its first subject, stated in the second violin, begins with three repeated eighth notes, starting on the fifth of the scale, followed by an ascending leap of a fourth and a descending scale in sixteenth notes. All of this marked staccato. Other than its distinctive rhythmic identity and consistent use of staccato articulations, it's not a particularly remarkable theme, but it does work well as a subject for imitation. The viola enters at the fifth in bar five, actually a fourth lower, and the first violin comes in at the octave in measure ten. The cello enters a few bars later, but breaks off the imitation quickly to concentrate on harmonic support. After the imitation works its way through the texture, a sequence and a couple of secondary dominant chords provide some momentum, and there is a last-minute chromatic modulation to bring about the new key of G major, just in time for the introduction of the second subject. Here is the first subject. The second subject is, if anything, more pedestrian than the first, and doesn't provide a great deal of stylistic contrast, although it does offer some new dotted rhythms, trills, and some new sforzandos. Now move to the second beat of the measure. After a brief transitional passage featuring some rapid plagal cadences, which you heard near the end of my excerpt, the imitation from the first subject starts up again, this time on E. But the imitation is short-lived and yields quickly to an attractive little passage that cadences on the dominant in G major. The closing section theme is more narrow in range, at least initially, hovering around the third of the G major chord. But like the first subject, it too is characterized by constant staccato eighth notes and sixteenth notes. It starts in violin one, but is immediately echoed down a third in violin two. After just four bars, the first violin introduces a new idea, one that begins with an octave leap before gradually working its way down the scale. But soon we're back to the narrow range staccato melody that began the closing section. I'll play it in just a minute. After a couple of linking measures featuring offbeat sforzando accents, we find ourselves in the brief Codetta. The Codetta presents two motives. The first employs the three repeated staccato eighth notes that played an important role in the first subject, and a lesser role in the second subject and closing sections. And the second is based on an ascending fifth, followed by a quickly descending sixteenth note scale. The Codetta begins very quietly, picking up a little sonority along the way, and brings the exposition to a pianissimo conclusion. Here is the closing section heading to the Codetta and the conclusion of the exposition. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Not surprisingly, the development section makes a liberal use of imitation. But there are a few minor surprises, as when all four parts combine for a series of expressive block chords in eighth notes to move the key from D minor to A minor, and later when the texture fragments to four different sustained lines to eventually bring about a very effective chromatic modulation, setting up the return of C major for the recapitulation. But that's as far as we're going to go with the scherzo movement. The next movement is a minuetto in C minor, 3-4 time and marked allegretto. It's unusual to have both a scherzo movement and a minuet in the same quartet. This particular minuet offers little in the way of novelty beyond some charming details. Therefore, we're going to press on to the finale, also in C minor, alla breve and marked allegro. Do any of the later movements of the C minor quartet fulfill the promise shown by the first? Possibly not, but the finale a classic rondo features a fiery refrain theme and abundant contrast, which combine for an unusually attractive movement. The refrain, set out in a standard rounded binary form, begins with a three-note ascent to a descending series of broken thirds, which after reaching down to the tonic note, start to climb back up again. The second four-bar phrase is largely a repeat of the first, ending on the dominant, after which the entire eight bars repeat. The second section of the refrain also starts with a pair of ascending pickup notes, but then introduces a new pattern that drops sequentially by step with sforzando accents on the fourth beat of the pattern. The harmonic rhythm is quite a bit quicker here, plowing through the circle of fifths after first tonicizing the subdominant chord, before coming to rest on the dominant with a fermata. The last four bars of the first section, slightly varied, then return quietly, but crescendo up to forte before closing out on tonic and rounding out the A, B, A prime refrain form. The first episode begins instantly in A flat major. The melody, beginning in the second violin, is much more sustained and lyrical, starting with an ascending fourth and undulating gently before eventually peaking an octave higher, and then gradually descending. The first violin floats a sustained countermelody above it, creating a lovely series of suspensions and half-step resolutions. Here's the first half of the episode with its repeat. The second half of the episode begins with the same leap of a fourth, but evolves into a series of ascending fourths and diminished fifths that are in turn imitated by the first violin. True to form, this B section is followed by another A section, and the entire episode closes on A-flat major. Here is the second half of the first episode. A varied and somewhat more intense version of the refrain theme follows, back in C minor. 
immediately afterward, again with no transition or retransition in either case, we encounter the second episode, the C episode in an A, B, A, C, B prime A rondo pattern. It's a quirky little section that Watson refers to as a rustic musette, and the first section features an almost drone-like repetition of the tonic. The melody, such as it is, consists primarily of three sixteenth note triplet pickup notes, prefacing a series of staggered whole notes on the tonic, heard first in the cello and subsequently in the viola and second violin. At the top of this little pyramid, the first violin provides some eighth note melodic activity vaguely reminiscent of the refrain theme. The second section of this episode offers little that is new. The same game is played, or a slight variant of it, but this time on the dominant. Here is the second episode. A variation of the refrain follows. In the first section, the tune starts in the second violin, but the first chases after it and soon reasserts its dominance. The second section is somewhat rearranged, but the essence remains intact. After a transition of seven bars, a variant of episode one then appears in C major, its lovely chain of suspensions still evident, but provided with more rigorous rhythmic accompaniment this time around. There is also a retransition back to the refrain this time, one that develops the opening bar of the refrain theme briefly as it flirts quickly with other keys, providing just enough tonal variety so that we feel as if we've actually been on a journey when we make our way back to C minor for the final refrain. The final refrain is marked prestissimo and generally goes by at tremendous speed. The final version of the refrain leaves out the B subsection not an unusual ploy, but extends the A subsection into the coda, which introduces one new syncopated rhythmic figure before driving to a fortissimo cadence. The last few bars bring back the 16th note triplet pickup notes from the C episode for good measure, as a final example of motivic integration. Here's the final prestissimo version of the refrain and the coda. This finale doesn't even begin to balance the weight or profundity of the first movement, but it is colorful and exciting and sweeps the listener along to its dazzling finish. We'll move on now to string quartet number five in A major. The fifth quartet in the set is generally applauded for its lighthearted lyricism and unpretentiousness, but it has not completely escaped negative assessments. 
Kerman states that, whereas previous first movements in this group have been intellectual and dense, the first movement of the A major quartet is positively bland. Kerman's remarks aside, most commentators have found the first movement in 6A time in Marked Allegro to be attractive, if for no other reason than its delightful themes. The first subject begins boldly with triple stops asserting the tonic chord, after which the melody makes its way up the A major scale in three-note sprints, playing off against triadic arpeggios in the cello. By the fourth measure, a more lilting phrase is introduced over a tonic pedal. The theme, which cadences on the tonic in bar 11, is followed by a modulatory transition featuring swirling 16th notes and offbeat 8th note interjections from the second violin, viola, and cello. Although its motivic elements are interesting enough and will play an important role later in the movement, the passage doesn't actually modulate. By the way, Kerman refuses to acknowledge it as a real modulatory transition at all, claiming that it's just part two of the first subject and it's certainly possible to hear it that way. Nevertheless, after eight bars, we do get a somewhat cursory modulation to the dominant to prepare for the second subject which is characterized by an opening leap of a sixth and repeated rhythmic patterns alternating quarters and eighths. When it enters, it's actually in E minor, although it moves quickly through A minor and then G major. When the first idea repeats an octave higher, it then moves into E major, which is the key we expected all along. The closing section idea is new, but some commentators hear it as linked to the opening notes of the first subject, probably because of the staccato articulations which both employ. The first two bars are immediately imitated at the fifth and repeated sequentially several times over the next few measures. After a repeated cadential figure, a somewhat novel codetta appears, based first on a repeated note motive from the viola, but quickly introducing a leap of a ninth harmonized by an unusual inverted ninth chord, and followed by a strong descending figure. A few bars later, this motive yields to a conventional cadence pattern that will take the exposition to its demure conclusion, or back to the beginning of the movement if the repeat is taken.
Beethoven begins the development section by toying with the Codetta motive, but soon makes references to the first subject as well. It's all a little bit on the generic side, although one lovely new melodic idea does spring up briefly, and Kerman has characterized the development section as a whole as vacuous. There being no major surprises to speak of in the recapitulation, we're going to move on now, not to the second movement, a minuetto, but to the third movement, in D major, 2-4 time, and marked Andante Cantabile. We're more used to seeing slow movements occupying the second slot and minuets or scherzos the third, but ample precedence for this switch exists in both Haydn and Mozart. It is, in fact, a string quartet by Mozart, the string quartet in A major, Kirchhoff 464, that has been cited time and again as a model for Beethoven's A major quartet, and one that shows the same configuration of movements. It's an attractive theme in variations that increases in interest as it unfolds. The theme, harmonized in parallel sixths by the violins, is elegant in its simplicity, 16 bars in length in a traditional rounded binary form. It begins with a distinctive leap of an ascending major sixth from the fifth scale degree. It then descends down to its starting point and then ascends back up a sixth. Here's the first part without the repeat. The second part of the theme is a bit more rhythmically active than the first. It's initially shared between viola and cello for the first two bars, then answered by the violins in the next two. The last four bars are taken up with a variant of the first bars of the first section, the melody now played up an octave. Here's the second part without the repeat. In the first variation, the opening ascending sixth as an upbeat is intact, and the original melodic contour is hinted at in places, but otherwise it seems as if we've entered a different world. The melody, played softly and sempre staccato by the cello, is imitated at the octave after two bars by the viola, and two bars after that by the second violin. The first violin joins in a measure later with a partial tonal imitation. The variation increases in texture and volume as it proceeds, and offbeat sforzando accents in the 11th measure add to its strong sense of identity. The second half of the variation adds two interesting new elements that reinforce each other, a borrowed minor subdominant chord and a short but effective countermelody in the second violin, later echoed by the first, both of which inject a note of poignance in the otherwise cheerful banter between the instruments.
Variations 2 and 3 are not without charm, but are largely conventional in their approach. So, we're going to jump to the fourth variation. It's quiet, legato, and presents an interesting and even surprising reharmonization of the melody that reveals a barely suspected depth of emotion within that theme. After this most pensive of variations, the fifth, which follows immediately, is almost a shock. It's a bright, noisy, almost purposely trivial little march. The viola doubles the second violin melody down an octave, while violin one trills, and the cello pumps out an active, if uninspired, march-like bass line. But, as you could hear right at the end of my excerpt, the whole march is little more than a setup. After both sections of the variation are presented and repeated, we are jolted by an abrupt and magical modulation to B-flat major that introduces a coda, widely acknowledged to be the most interesting part of the entire movement. Once all four instruments have joined back in the fray, we are presented with the most wonderfully variegated texture heard to this point. We don't stay in the new key of B-flat for long, however. Eight measures after reintroducing our theme in the second violin against delicate, playful countermelodies from violin one and viola, Beethoven modulates back to D major via a tricky chromatic modulation, from which point we hear the familiar theme in the cello. We carry on in this vein for some time, 
with a gradual increase in urgency due to a crescendo and the introduction of frequent accents. But we do not end with a bang. Instead, we pause with a fermata on the dominant chord, and the tempo shifts to poco adagio. We are then treated to a very delicate, final, affectionate look back at our theme. And though the dynamics surge somewhat as we approach the final measures, we actually conclude with a pianissimo chord on the tonic. The finale, in A major, Alabrev and marked allegro, is a wonderfully energetic movement, and Angus Watson is right on the mark when he refers to Beethoven's initial four-note motive as mischievous. This little motive, which could be heard as a more frolicsome pre-echo of the famous Fifth Symphony fate motive, is tossed around with such enthusiasm that a comparison with the dominating opening motive from the first movement of the F major quartet could easily come to mind. But the effect here is very different than in the F major quartet. The impression made here is not so much motivic concentration leading to a high level of tension as it is an abundance of playfulness. After the initial four-note motive makes its appearance, first in the viola, then in the first violin, and a measure later in the second violin, the first theme passes to a series of carefully articulated eighth-note scale-wise patterns, the whole passage coming to rest on the dominant. The next phrase continues tossing around the initial four-note motive in the three lower parts, while the first violin continues the eighth-note pattern from measure five. A little later, a new, more broadly lyrical phrase of four bars is introduced in the first violin, and doubled at the sixth by the second. But still, the original four-note motive is in evidence, heard first in the cello, and then bouncing to the upper parts as the cello and viola assume the more broadly lyrical phrase. The more lyrical phrase then fades from the scene, but elements from the first subject are still very much present as we move on to the modulatory transition. Here is the first subject and modulatory transition. The second subject contrasts dramatically with the first. It consists of a series of whole notes ascending in perfect fourths, each pair starting a step lower. Hermann sees in this a resemblance to one of Mozart's themes in the Kirschel 464 quartet. The new theme starts on E major and ends eight measures later on its dominant. But in between, the tonality is quite fluid, consisting of a series of diminished seventh chords, none of which resolve normally. But the eight-bar melody is then repeated again, this time an octave higher in the first violin, against a series of descending quarter notes in the second violin and viola, a countermelody that is to become as important in defining the personality of the second subject as the original melodic idea.
We're going to pass over the closing section and codetta and skip ahead to the development section. It will come as no surprise that the original four-note motive that introduced the first subject dominates here, and in fact the entire first subject comes into play at the beginning of the development. There are some unexpected key shifts quite early on, and some interesting new countermelodies are introduced along the way. Things do get somewhat intense as we move from D major to D minor at one point, and the four-note motive returns with a vengeance. But it's always clear that there's an element of self-mockery involved here. Beethoven does not completely ignore the second subject in all of this. The opening notes of the second subject are introduced, given an almost chorale-like harmonization. But it's only a glimpse. Almost immediately, Beethoven returns his focus to the first subject, especially the opening four-note motive. After visiting other keys briefly, Beethoven latches on to A minor, and much of the rest of the development section resides there, at times evoking an almost mysterious quality. The section finishes with a re-articulated pedal on the dominant, ending with a fermata. The recapitulation does naturally have some points of interest, but we're going to leave it here. And as a final word on quartet number five, I'm going to quote Kerman, who suggests that Beethoven is here striving for a glossy, easy, relaxed brilliance. I don't think there's any doubt that he achieved it. We'll move on now to the last quartet in the set, number six in B-flat major. Critical opinion on the sixth quartet of Opus 18 has been somewhat mixed over the years. The last movement, its introduction designated as La Melinconia, has been given a lot of attention and provoked a fair amount of speculation as to its significance in Beethoven's personal life. But the other movements, particularly the first, have not always been treated so respectfully. The first three movements of the quartet have seldom been characterized as inadequate, but composed as they were at a time when Beethoven was beginning to show more frequent glimpses of his future greatness, they are often seen as unexceptional and perhaps a little disappointing. Because of this and also general time limitations, we're going to move directly to movement number three. It's a scherzo in B-flat major, 3-4 time. Beethoven had for some time been fond of using offbeat accents to produce tension or to generate rhythmic excitement, especially in quieter passages, sometimes pairing these things with unexpected shifts in the harmonic rhythm. 
most of his earliest efforts in this direction could be seen in one way or another as building on Haydn's rhythmic novelties. But in this case, Beethoven goes beyond anything his teacher had ever achieved in respect to the manipulation of rhythm. He had never before presented such an extreme example of accented syncopations, two against three cross rhythms, and across-the-bar ties. And yet the result of employing all of these unusual devices is far from shocking. All of Beethoven's clever tricks seem to reside quite comfortably within the context of a jaunty scherzo movement that is overbrimming with high spirits. Here is the first eight-measure section with the repeat. The first eight bars are simple enough harmonically, but the second section is a little more adventurous in that regard, employing a series of secondary dominant chords and a surge in the harmonic rhythm. More melodic variety is also provided, with three separate motives appearing. The first tied to the opening bars of the first section, the second based on a series of staccato eighth notes harmonized in block chords, and the third a three-note cadential tag that is repeated several times. The initial melodic phrase from the first section eventually returns, also harmonized in block chords, and ornamented with a long sustained trill in the first violin. Another repeated cadential tag takes us to a new series of staccato eighth notes, which eventually escort us to the end of the section. Rhythmically, it's all quite cleverly done, and actually locating a downbeat becomes something of a challenge from time to time. Here's the second section of the scherzo without the repeat. The trio section is shorter and more thinly scored, as is frequently the case. It also relies heavily on a single new motive, one that outlines a series of descending staccato triads and ascending lines, each chord tone embellished by a slurred lower neighbor figure. Here's a simplified example of that motive. Here's the eight-measure first section of the trio, the lower string supporting the solo first violin, mostly with sustained chords. In the second eight-bar section of the trio, Beethoven tilts briefly in the direction of C minor, as the first violin produces a variant of its earlier motive and the accompanying strings take on a slightly more active role. 
In the second ending for this section, Beethoven provides a dramatic little linking passage in B-flat minor, which sends us back to the scherzo section with a good deal of momentum. It's a wonderfully high-spirited, energetic scherzo. Its relationship to what comes next is another matter, for what comes next is a very famous finale, the slow introduction to which Beethoven himself has labeled La Melinconia, Melancholy. This label has understandably given rise to a great deal of speculation over the years, exactly what or whose melancholy is Beethoven referring to. Some commentators began the discussion by making reference to the alleged bouts of depression suffered by Beethoven's mother, a condition that has never been fully documented, and implying that Beethoven may have inherited a propensity for moodiness, at the very least, from his mother. Others point out that Beethoven himself had some cause for depression independently of any supposed genetic disposition. Even though his career was proceeding quite nicely in this period, it is possible that Beethoven was becoming increasingly unnerved by the early signs of hearing loss, which were soon to come to a head. And of course, Beethoven was known to be despondent from time to time over his ongoing romantic difficulties. So, is the reference to melancholy, then, to be taken as a personal statement by Beethoven, indicative of the mood or frame of mind he was in while composing that particular movement, or is it just a descriptor for the sort of slow introduction he was interested in composing at that point? The slow movement for this quartet was not by any means an emotionally intense one, and the scherzo, for all of its rhythmic wonders, is nevertheless a light-hearted movement. The allegretto quasi allegro fast movement that follows the melancholy introduction projects quite a gay and even flippant quality. It's quite possible that Beethoven simply saw the need to provide some strong emotional contrast between the scherzo and the final fast movement. The fact that this would cause a sense of emotional disconnect between the movements was of no concern to Beethoven. In fact, he may well have sought such a disconnect, an early example of the sort of purposeful discontinuity often described in terms of romantic irony in his later works. The introduction begins with a series of slow-moving chords in B-flat major. The melody, given by the first violin and harmonized in sixths and thirds by the second, is a modest one. It begins on the third of the tonic chord, drops down to the tonic itself, and slowly works its way up to the fifth of the chord, climaxing with a triple grace note at the high point. The second four bars are a slightly varied repeat of the first four, with the melody given down an octave by the second violin and the cello added on the bottom to darken the timbre. In the eighth bar of the introduction, he pauses on an inverted dominant chord, but from that point on, he abandons the key of B-flat major and begins to move tentatively towards C minor, introducing his first diminished chord in the process. But the key of C minor never arrives. Instead, Beethoven introduces a very puzzling string of six full diminished seventh chords in a row, 
none of them having obvious tonal implications. Beethoven had previously employed brief successions of non-functional diminished sevenths in earlier compositions, but never in such an extended fashion and never with the same intense result. New motives are added into the mix as the introduction continues, including a prominent ascending minor sixth, and at times a fairly clear sense of tonality emerges, but never for long, and for the most part the key center remains ambiguous. Here's the first part of the slow introduction. However one might characterize the mood of this long and very unusual introduction, whether tension-filled, mysterious, or even alienated, what follows next certainly comes as a surprise. The first two sprightly bars of the Allegretto Quasi-Allegro section in 3-8 time constitute the basic thematic material for the rest of the movement, which has been described variously as a rondo or as a sonata form without a proper development section. The next two measures consist of a varied sequential repetition of the first two, which features a leap to a high B-flat and a gradual descent after that, all within a near-frantic flow of sixteenth notes that must recall the scherzo movement to some extent. Here's an excerpt beginning with the final bars of the slow introduction, after the point at which the dramatic diminished seventh chords have been reintroduced, and as we head toward a fragile cadence on B-flat minor pausing on the dominant in that key before jumping into the allegretto section in B-flat major. Thank you. 
It's quite a juxtaposition, and it happens more than once. Later in the movement, after the main theme has returned in close to its original form for the second time, we revert to Tempo 1, and a varied and abbreviated version of the melancholy introduction is reintroduced. Then, after a fragment of the main allegretto theme is heard, the flow is again interrupted for an even briefer glimpse of the original adagio introduction. Then, the allegretto theme once again comes scampering back, this time in a new key. If our last impression is our strongest, then we can't help thinking of this movement as more sprightly than melancholy, the introduction and its reintroduction notwithstanding. So, in the end, it's quite possible that this melancholy introduction, as striking as it is, is just a ploy to create space between the scherzo movement and the finale, which Beethoven might have considered too close to each other in spirit to have one follow the other directly. So, in the end, what do we make of Beethoven's first collection of string quartets? Is it Beethoven finally asserting himself as his own master, putting aside all possible influences from Haydn and Mozart? Far from it. Those influences remain very much in evidence. But there is also plenty of evidence of Beethoven striking out on his own, with increased confidence and developing his own idiosyncratic style, with the finale of string quartet number six being just the most dramatic example. For our next episode, we'll take a look at Beethoven's Symphony No. 1 in C major. <laughs> 